We are going to be in Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was a what has cha- had changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Good evening. How are you guys doing? It's the first day of spring. Did you guys do something outside this morning? Go on a hike? It was beautiful. All right. Well, tonight we're going to continue through Daniel. We're going to continue through. That was a long passage. You guys doing okay? Yeah. Um, this is one of the most well-known stories out of Scripture. Most of you are, I'm sure, familiar with the story. First of all, we read it last week, so you should be familiar with it, at least in that case. Secondly, I mean, Veggie Tales, it's a, it's a pretty common story, right? Felt, 
You guys having like flashbacks of felt boards? <clears throat> so last week we started in this chapter. We looked at the background and ultimately what got us to this point. Nikolai walked us through that. If you missed that, uh, you should go listen to it. But to catch us up in the story, I just kind of want to retouch some of these key points. This chapter is a bit of a departure from the rest of the book of Daniel. It's a bit of a departure for one main reason. Who's missing? Daniel. Daniel's not mentioned in this story, in this whole chapter. He's not there. The story centers around his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These guys, they came to Babylon with Daniel and probably others in the first wave of this exile out of Judah. And they were brought to Babylon. They had gone through the Babylonian immersion program, this school of Babylon. They had learned the ways, been indoctrinated in the ways of Babylon for, at this point, a while. Their names had been changed. And actually, it appears they had, they had achieved some level of success while in Babylon. They're doing okay. And in this story, we find them in a bit of a hard spot, to say the least. They're taken outside of the city to the plain of Dura. And they're told that when they hear all the music, remember all the like the harp, the lyre, the bagpipe, the the whole list of instruments from last week? Remember that? When they hear the music play, they are to fall down and to worship this golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But these are devout Jewish boys, young men. These are followers of Yahweh. And now they have a decision to make. They're faced with a decision of what are they going to do? How do they handle this situation? How do they remain faithful in the midst of options? Will they worship this image or will they remain uncompromised in their worship of Yahweh? Up until now, in the story, they had drawn a line at their diet. They had not given into the indulgent food of the palace. We learned about that in chapter 1. And God blessed that. God actually blessed that, and they ended up getting promoted because of it. So now they have another choice to make, and this time Daniel's not there. They have to make this choice. We don't know where Daniel is. The scripture doesn't tell us. But he's not there, apparently. Will they fall down? Will they worship this image? Or will they, as the threat is, be thrown into the fiery furnace? We we know from the passage we just read what happens. Few things I think are important for us to take a minute and stop and think about in this story. If we were in this situation, you have to just like put yourself in the story for a second. If we were in this situation, what would we do? Imagine how isolated, 
how alone, how incredibly vulnerable they would feel when they stood amongst a sea of bodies that are laid down flat before this image, and you have these three guys. The expectation that all the other Jews would probably have obeyed Nebuchadnezzar's command. It seems like they probably did. There was more than just the three of them. We don't know. The scripture doesn't tell us explicitly, but I'm implying something here. It seems like there were others who did bow. For sure, it's that could possibly have swayed their decision. If we're honest with ourselves, you're in the, a sea of people all bowing. That's compelling. But they would remain faithful. Their worship was not determined by what anybody else around them was doing. The object and the intent of their worship was not governed by what everybody else around them was doing. They would remain faithful. They might have reasoned in their heart, they might have thought to themselves, why does this God, why does Yahweh even deserve our allegiance? After all, he just handed our nation over to Babylon. He put us in this situation. We're here because of him. Where was he when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed our homes and led us off into slavery? They could have allowed a root of bitterness and frustration with God to develop. If God didn't intervene to protect us, why should we risk our next for him? But they didn't do that. They would remain faithful. Certainly, by not obeying Nebuchadnezzar's command, they would then forfeit any hope of advancement or development in their position in the king's court. They would then be laying down and surrendering the status that they had, possibly the influence that they would have to affect the lives of their friends and family who were coming into exile. Would this actually hurt their ability to help their family? Would this make things harder on their loved ones? on their community? Would their compliance possibly with the Babylonian decree here, would that have saved hundreds of lives? They could be wrestling with all these things. We would wrestle with all these things. If we're honest, we would, we would reason with ourselves. We would negotiate in our minds to what degree can I give in? But what about our ability to continue God's work? What about our love and care for those around us? They didn't do that. They remained faithful. They chose to remain faithful. And what we see in this story is that the primary governing value, the thing that they held supreme over every other option 
The thing that they held over everything was their worship and their allegiance to Yahweh. These guys, I believe, is a type and a picture for followers of Yahweh, for followers of Jesus, as exiles and strangers in a land that is not their own, in the context of options, these guys held their worship as of Yahweh supreme over every other option. Their adoration and affection for Yahweh was supreme over everything else. It was supreme over their safety, their lives, their security, their comfort, their pleasures, their family, their emotional baggage that they might be carrying, their feelings of disappointment and frustration, even against Yahweh. Above all of that, they said, he is still worthy. He is still worth everything. He is still worthy. As I was thinking through this story this week, it reminded me of this passage in 1 Kings where Elijah, the prophet, he says this. It's one of my favorite verses. He says, 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah came near to the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer him. This is a situation very much like that. If the Lord is who he says he is, he is worthy. If Yahweh is who he says he is, serve him, follow him. As we read this story, it should cause us to reflect on our lives. I think that's the point as we read these stories in the scripture, as you hear them taught and preached. Is our life, is our worship and adoration of Jesus the supreme value over everything else that we value in life? Does every other decision we make, every action we do, every choice we make, does it reflect him as supreme? Does it all come secondary to our worship of Jesus? And it's important, when I say worship, I'm not just talking about music, what we just did, which is amazing, right? But I'm not talking about just music. Having worship music as a genre in the background while you're working doesn't make your work worship, right? Worship is what you give worth to. Worship is what you give value to. Our English word for worship comes from a combination of worth and script. It's the idea of ascribing value, ascribing worth. The point is you worship what you value. What you hold up is the most precious thing in life. What gets your attention, where, where it gets the object of your, your, um, your money, your investment, your calendar, what you value most is where your worship is going. The biblical word for worship has to do with paying homage to or bowing down before. It's described with words like 
magnify, to make God bigger than everything else. Glorify, which means to make him heavier or weightier or more important than everything else. To lift him up, to elevate him in prominence and importance in your life. To adore him, which is to express your love and affection for. What we supremely value is what we worship. Worship is not just songs we sing or a music genre in your Spotify. We sing because we are enamored and in love with King Jesus. So it's an opportunity for us as the gathered body of Jesus to collectively express our affections for him. That's why we sing. That's why we put words on the screen so that we can together lift up the name of Jesus. That we can glorify him and make him bigger in our lives. Songs have a way of uniting us as a group to do that. But it's not by any means the only way we do that. All of life is worship. Everything you do can be an act of worship. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All of life can be and is to a certain extent an act of worship. Everything you do can be done to the glory of God or to the glory of something else. It's kind of a silly little story, but last week Naomi had the kids at a bike race and Levi, who is too young to be even racing in this category, um, he's nine, but he finished the race. And I don't even think he finished last, for, for the record. But he finished, and Naomi asked him, this is unprovoked, Naomi asked him, hey, how did it feel? And he said something to the extent of, it was good, it was good. And it, you know what, I did it so that I did it for God's glory. He's nine. But there is something to that, that like even a bike race that was hard and he was coming in way behind everybody else, he can do that in his mind as a gift he's giving to God. I'm going to try hard because I want to glorify God. He's nine years old. It just stood out to me. 1 Corinthians 10 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. How does this work? Practically, what does that look like? When we live as disciples of Jesus, when we are increasingly learning to submit 
all of our lives to his lordship and his leadership, that's worship. As we increasingly learn to submit all of our lives, the things that we want, the things that we don't want, the things that feel good, the things that don't feel good, the things that make us comfortable, the things that make us uncomfortable. As we submit it all to his leadership and trust him, that's worship. Being with Jesus, it's worship. Becoming like Jesus, it's worship. Doing what Jesus did, it's worship. Very practically, in the context of compelling, competing options, the worshiper of Jesus will choose the way of Jesus over every other option. Even good options. That's what we see these three guys doing. They had other options. I mean, it's silly, but like, you know, we, we do silly things like this. Like, oh, I got my fingers crossed behind my back. I didn't actually mean it. We like reason things like that. I didn't actually mean to worship that. God knew my heart. I know everybody else saw it, but God knew my heart. They had options, but they chose worship of Yahweh over every other option. Clearly, Nebuchadnezzar was not super thrilled. He was not very happy about this. And the reality is, when we choose the way of Jesus, just being honest, when we choose the way of Jesus over compelling, competing options, it's not always going to be pleasant. The more than likely, not everybody around you is going to be happy when you choose to worship Jesus over every other option. This is not a recipe to make other people like you more. The way of Jesus doesn't do that for us. You'll remember from reading the passage last week, going into verse 16, the guys respond to this demand of worship this way. They say this. They answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you on this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I love this passage. We have no evidence that they were rude or angry or violent in the way they said this. Just matter of fact. In fact, I think the text points to the opposite. They were just clear. Basically, it's like this. I'm going to take some uh, liberties in the way I, th I would picture this going. It's like this. Nebuchadnezzar, we really have nothing to say to you. 
We have nothing to say in defense here. Nothing to, to say that would change your mind. So to save your time, don't even start the band. We are not worshiping. We won't do it. Don't even start the band. We will only worship Yahweh. Oh, and by the way, you asked, because he asked in verse 15, who is the God who can deliver out of your hands? Our God is able. He can do it. He's the only one able, actually. He's the only true God. He's the God who acts on behalf of his people. He's the only God who will get our worship and our affection. In fact, the only reason, this is, I'm taking liberties here. The only reason we're even here, O king, to serve in your court is as an act of submission and worship to Yahweh. He is our supreme ruler. He is king. He is the affection of our life. He is the only one we will bow to. They say, but even if not, I love that. Even if he doesn't, we still won't worship your idol. We will only worship him. This, I think, is the key for us today as we continue on. I think we have a lot to learn from this statement. This should not, statement here that I just read, should not be taken as if they questioned God's power, by the way. I think they had no doubt God was able. He could save them. There's no doubt that God had the power and the ability. He's omnipotent. He can do everything. He could do anything. He could deliver them from the fiery furnace. But they had no right to presume he would do so. Hence the but. But even if he doesn't. Two things I think we learned from this. First, the young men recognize, and I think we need to recognize, that God's will might and very well often is different from what we would find ideal or pleasing. Clearly, remember that they're in Babylon, and none of this fits their ideal plan. So clearly, not everything that God does is the most ideal thing in front of us. But ultimately, they were willing to have it, and even without complaining. Way too often, we are not willing to have God's will be different from that of our own. We want God to conform to our image. We want God to do what we want him to do. Second thing, this is key, they didn't make their obedience contingent on God doing what they wanted him to do. They didn't make their obedience to Yahweh, their worship, 
contingent on God showing up and doing them a favor. They were ready to obey whether or not God chose to deliver them. In other words, this is the point. They found their object of affection in God himself, not on anything God could do for them. They were looking at Jesus, Yahweh, not on his gifts or his provision or his blessings. So where we left the story last week was with our three heroes, these young men, being thrown into this fiery furnace. And to everyone's astonishment, especially Nebuchadnezzar, they don't die. In fact, they're walking around in the fire with what looks like a God figure, an angel or, or this being. The only thing that was damaged in this whole ordeal, in fact, was the rope that was used to bind them and the soldiers who threw them into the fire. They died. And you guys, I think this is good news. This is what Nikolai hit on last week. When we go through the fire, this is the gospel for us. When we go through situations in life that feel like the fire, there is Christ. He is there. He is with us. He is acquainted with our sorrow. He knows the pain. He knows the struggle. He goes with us in the fire. And the hope is that the story doesn't end there. Story doesn't end with them walking around in the fire. But ultimately, we do know from history that the way this story ends is not true for everyone. Not everybody walks out of that furnace. In this story, they do. But we know from history, it's not always the case. I was reading Hebrews 11 this week, thinking about the, we call it the hall of faith. These stories the author of Hebrews putting out. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 33, if you have your Bibles, let's read a little bit here. And he's talking about, it's going on about different men of faith who have lived by faith, verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained permission, stopped the mouth of lions, we'll get to that one, quenched the power of the fire, hey, that's our story tonight, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put armies to flight, these are all the big victories, But then the author of Hebrews says this, women received their dead, received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might raise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking 
and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. We know not everybody who chooses the way of Jesus gets the end of the story. Some of them are waiting the resurrection. Jump down to chapter 12 here in, Dan, or in uh, Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight of sin which, close, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews clearly had Daniel in mind. That last sentence is a direct hyperlink to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man will be lifted up and seated at the right hand of the Lord. In many ways, this story in Daniel 3, this whole chapter, is an analogy or a parable for the whole book and for the whole of the Hebrews' experience in exile. Therefore, as aliens and strangers, as exiles, as Christians, I think it is the same for us. And remember, as we said early on as we started this book, our goal in this series is not just to know these stories. Our goal is not just to understand the history better, but to see why these books are, why this book and this story is in the Bible. Why is this even here? Daniel's not in this story. How has this story shaped the faith community throughout history? How can it shape us? This story is here to give us hope and confidence that our God is able. It has historically given confidence and boldness to worshipers of Yahweh. This passage screams, you can live as a faithful worshiper in Babylon. You don't need to bow your knee to the image that's held up in front of you. You can live as that creative minority, unique and different, worshiping Jesus in the midst of options. So what happens in the story? When Nebuchadnezzar sees that they're alive, he calls to them. He says to them, he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. It's astonishing. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges what only a few verses ago he was asking, he was arrogantly de declaring, who is the God who can deliver you from my hands? There isn't, he's saying, there's not a God anywhere who could protect you from me. 
And then here he is with his jaw on the ground saying, you are the servants of the most high God. Astonished. He has no choice but to declare that the God of these guys is the most high. He is supreme over every other deity. They come out of the fire. They're inspected. They're found that nothing is harmed. The only thing that's destroyed is the rope that bound them. Not their clothes, nothing. There's not even a smell of smoke on them. And again, listen to Nebuchadnezzar's response here in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel to deliver his servants, who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb. All right, Nebuchadnezzar, that's a little intense. Why, though? He had just had his own question from verse 15 answered in dramatic fashion. His own arrogant decree, who is a God that can protect you from me? He just saw the answer right in front of him. Yahweh can. So why does he do this decree? Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion after all of this, I think ultimately is to protect his own kingdom. No one better mess with these guys, God. The whole kingdom has now been put on notice. Yahweh is the most high God. The God of the Jews, Yahweh, is supreme. And anybody who dares to speak against him will be torn limb from limb. And here's why. Because if Yahweh is that powerful, there is no God or kingdom or king or power that can stand in his way. He is supreme. So what's the takeaway from this story? What do we do with this? Remember that as we are thinking about the book of Daniel, we're talking about what does it look like to be faithful in exile. We're looking at what it means to live as a creative minority. And I think we need to extrapolate these stories and bring them into the here and now. What do, what do we do with this? We're exploring what it looks like to be a faithful presence in a culture where it's working directly against your discipleship. The main thing I think we need to take away from this story is that he is worthy. Jesus is worthy. The question is, how do we become a people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who will worship Christ and Christ alone? Regardless of the threats, regardless of the options, regardless of the opinions of those around us or our feelings or our emotions, regardless of our ambitions, 
that we would worship him supreme? The answer is to get there, we must spend time with him. We must be with Jesus. We must get to know him. We must see what he's like. We must spend time studying him, studying the word, enjoying his presence so that he can be magnified and glorified. His worth will then become real to us. How do you think these guys, young men, developed this kind of loyalty, steadfastness to Yahweh? From their youth, from the earliest ages, they were told repeatedly, reminded the story of Yahweh's faithfulness, his covenant love, his commitment to his people, the stories of his miraculous provision, the stories of the, of the um, exodus and his, his rescuing power. These guys grew up hearing of God's power and his goodness and his kindness. We have an obligation not only to get a real revelation of who Jesus is for ourselves, to set our eyes on him, to fix our gaze on him as the author and perfecter of our faith, but also to tell his story, to pass it on to the generations. The faithful Jews would tell this story over and over and over again. The reason this story is in Daniel is so that while in exile and while being um, put into slavery, they could have this story of God's rescuing power. This reminder that God is good and he's powerful and nobody can stop him when he wants to do something. Every day, we have the option to remain faithful in our worship or to bow our knee to a plethora of competing and compelling options. Every day, we're confronted with options. You guys, he alone is worthy. He is worthy of our affection, our adoration. He is worthy of our allegiance. And if he's not that big or that valuable to you, my prayer, our prayer tonight, if he's not that real to you, my prayer is that we would get a revelation of who he is. That we would commit ourselves to the place of prayer. That we would surrender ourselves to to who he is and what he's like, that we would search the scriptures for his character, his goodness. We would remind ourselves over and over again of the stories of his faithfulness and his power so that we magnify him and he gets bigger and bigger and bigger 
And the situations and the options around us get smaller and smaller and smaller. Jordan and the team can come back up. And I just want to take a minute and pray for us. I was thinking about that story. Moses asked to see God's face. The tenacity of that. But there's something to that, that we need a revelation. We need a glimpse of the character and the power of our God. Oh, that his goodness would pass in front of us, that we would see who he is and what he's like, that we would surround ourselves with friends like these guys who won't bow their knees. If you stand with me, I'm just going to pray and then we'll worship. We'll take communion in a minute. Father, tonight, as a people who live amongst options, sometimes compelling, good, intriguing options, God, I pray that you would go before us, that you would show us your face, that you would give us a picture of who you are and what you're like that you would become so big and so supreme in our lives that our affection and our adoration to you would be high above every other option. That we would live and if necessary even die to glorify you. Jesus, you are high and lifted up. You are King of kings, you are Lord of lords. You're the beginning and the end. You uphold all things by the power of your word. You are before all things. Nothing exists except by you. You are supreme. We owe you everything. And God, we just say you are worthy. You're worthy of it all. Every hard thing, every good thing, you are worth it. We lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen.